This time on Music Day, a verified hit, we don't call it jazz. Black music in the world with Kirk Whalem, Terry Lynn Carrington, Gail Boyd, Nicholas Payton, and Jamal Ahmed. We're going to tell you stuff people won't tell you. Real talk with experience. We talking business up in here. We're going to give the people what they want. That's what I'm talking about. Welcome to Music Day, brought to you by the Living Legends Foundation, Inc., the podcast that invites you to listen to real-life stories of iconic music creators and legendary music executives, those who create the sounds and those who make business careers of it. It's an unabridged, no-holds-barred conversation with people behind the scenes. It all starts with a song and a story. It must be a verified hit on Music Day. I'm your host, Billy Johnson, Jr., Today we're discussing jazz music, triumphs and challenges for the genre, social justice, politics, and more. And we have an incredible list of panelists to guide us through this conversation. I'd like to introduce them at this time. First up, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Kirk Whalem. His career was, has been rooted in gospel music in his hometown of Memphis and was developed in the Houston nightclub scene where he was discovered by jazz pianist, Bob James. After touring and recording with Bob, he moved to Los Angeles, where he became an in-demand session player for A-list artists, most notably Whitney Houston, where he performed on her mega hit, I Will Always Love You. He had successful albums on Warner Brothers, four gospel recording jazz CDs, and collaborations with other jazz artists. He is an ordained minister, earning a Master's of Art in Religion, and hosts a daily podcast called Bible in Your Ear. Kirk is the recipient of numerous awards and is a music professor at Visible Music College in Memphis. How are you doing, Mr. Kirk? Thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you, Billy. Uh, I think I'm also the, the only one in this, in this square here with not a single verified hit. <laughs> so there you go. I'm grateful. I'm grateful just to be, you know, I, I have a broom. I'm going to sweep up Oh, wow. After everybody's done. <laughs> uh, you're too humble. You are way too humble. Okay, next up, I'd love to introduce you guys to Miss Gail Boyd, who is the president of Gail W. Boyd PC, an entertainment law firm, and Gail Boyd Artist Management, a wholly owned company of the firm. She was previously a founding partner in Boyd, Staten, and Cave, the first African-American woman law firm in New York City. In October 2019, she was elected president of the North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents, the first African-American woman to hold this position, as well as the first manager from the jazz genre. Well, congratulations, um, and thank you for being here with us today, Ms. Gale. Thank you, Billy. And I just have to say that Kurt Whalem is way too humble because <laughs> my client, Lakeisha Benjamin, when I told her that I was going to be on with him, she just jumped up and down and said, That's right. He is one of her absolute favorite saxophone. Oh, so. hi, Lakeisha. <laughs> She's the one with the hits, but go ahead. I'll <laughs> let her know. I <laughs> uh, love good energy. We're off to such a, a great start. Next, I'd love to introduce you to this three-time Grammy Award-winning drummer, producer, educator, and activist, Ms. Terry Lynn Carrington, who started her professional career as a kid wonder while studying under a full scholarship at Berklee College of Music in Boston. In the mid-80s, she worked as an in-demand drummer in New York before gaining national recognition 
on late night TV as a house drummer for both the Arsenio Hall show and Quincy Jones's Vibe TV show. Ms. Carrington is an honorary doctorate recipient from Berkeley and currently serves as founder and artistic director for the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. Hey, Terry Lynn, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Glad to have you here. And oh, uh, at our senior hall, we'll, we'll talk about that. But those are some good old days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, awesome. Thank you. Nice to be here uh, and a part of this illustrious group, all my buddies and friends. So this should be a great conversation. Oh, abso absolutely. Okay, next up, we have Mr. Jamal Ahmed, who started in radio at Morehouse College uh, as a student intern with Clark Atlanta University's 91.9 WCLK. He can currently be heard on the drive time shows on Atlanta's WCLK and Houston's WPVU 91.3 FM simultaneously. And the soul of jazz can be heard on 25 U.S. stations across America. Uh, he was co-founder and A&R director for the artistic collective record label, uh, Groovement, Earthsea Records, Signing, dot, 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 India Ari, Anthony David, Donnie, Avery Sunshine, and others. Welcome, Brother Jamal. Welcome to this panel. It's an to be here, Billy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and our final panelist for today is uh, Mr. Nicholas Payton. This Grammy Award-winning trumpeter, son of Walter Payton of the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, doesn't consider himself a jazz musician. He plays Black American music. A man, amen to that, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Very outspoken on social media. He's released albums on the likes of Verb and Warner Brothers, and has worked with everyone from Nancy Wilson to Herbie Hancock to Jill Scott. Uh, he recently released the album Quarantine with Nick, and y'all know we're going to talk about that today. Thank you all for being here today. I just want to give you all a round of applause. I don't want to mess up my sound for uh, Mr. Mark out there, but um, definitely excited to be with all you today. Thank you so much. We have a lot of good things to talk about, a lot of things happening in the world. So I would be remiss not to start off with this COVID thing because we're all affected by it. We're like six months into it. Um, we probably kind of adapted. We At this point, if you haven't found some way to adapt to it, I mean, you're in big trouble, right? So, but I want to, I want everyone to respond, um, to respond to this question. And uh, who, uh, who, who I start with? Maybe, um, maybe Ms. Terry Lynn, we'll, we'll start with you. But I want to know how has, um, you know, how's your profession, your day-to-day, -day, your work as a musician been affected by COVID? Um, well, I think, you know, the, what I've come to realize is the most important thing is to remain creative. So, um, you know, I was a creative musician before COVID. I'm a creative musician during COVID and I'll be a creative musician after COVID. And when I realized that I'm focused on how I create value in the world and focused on a sense of purpose, the, the venues may change, you know, the, the places may change, you know, they might be just here at my computer, but um, I'm still, just as active i'm just as busy and i'm still working so it really taught me that um it's more about your sense of purpose uh i'm just as creative if i'm writing a forward to a book as i am writing a song or playing on a stage and um i'm very grateful that i've been able to remain working during this 
during this uh, crisis. I, 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 I love that. Um, and so, yeah, to write a to write a forward to the book does require you to be on the road or have an audience or something. So I can definitely see how that. But is there, in terms of being creative, is there anything that has emerged out of this time? Um, something that you weren't necessarily doing before or had not been doing as much, but because of the quarantine and isolation that you know created an opportunity. Sure. Um, I was just the MD for the. National Endowment for the Arts uh, Jazz Masters uh, concert, which became an online concert. So I had to learn or just do um, a whole different way, you know, of how to MD a concert performance when nobody's playing together. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. Yeah, because we, so did you have any of those scenarios where there's like a Zoom session and there's everyone in different windows and then the, the magic was trying to figure out how to still make it you know, be harmonious. So I, I don't know if it were, were there those kind of technical things you had to sort out? No, we weren't in a Zoom session. We didn't actually play together. So um, what I had to do was create uh, kind of like bedding tracks, say uh, with finale files so that people could hear the parts even though they're being played by MIDI instruments. And then people put their parts in and then I replace the real musician with the MIDI musician, which can, can work okay with groove music, but half of our stuff was swinging. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it's a little different, you know, trying to do it that way because you're really more, you know, trying to, to, to create this pulse together. So I had a lot of editing to do, you know, to try to make it sound like we were all in the same place. And it was okay. video, uh, it, everybody did their own video, but there was a company that, um, edited these videos together uh, to make it look, you know, as nice as possible. So it didn't have just people in squares. Right, 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 right. And so when it was all done, though, and you saw it, like, what did you think? You were like, whoa, I think we're on to something, something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What I think is, um, you know, we figure out how to do things, uh, whether the circumstances around us are changing or, or not, we still figure out how to do things to the best of our abilities. And if people that have strong work ethics, I think, um, mm. rise, you know, to this occasion. And also, as I have to deal with this with our students at Berkeley trying to play together in this same type of layered track thing. And um, I, I feel like it's teaching people how to imagine what other people are, are going to play. It's making yeah. everybody's instincts a little bit better, you know, with how to leave space and, and how to, um, you know, imagine what's, what it sounds like. I, lo I love it. And it just lastly, with the students, though, so this is, um, you know, this is their generation. They grew up with technology and cell phones and this kind of thing. So did you find that it was easy for your students to adapt, you know, to this? Not exactly. I mean, I think it's a personality thing. Some people adapted better than others. And I think that's kind of like the point, the takeaway with all of this. You know, how can you be a person that affects your environment opposed to the person that totally lets your environment affect you. Right. You know love, what I mean? Yeah, love it. Okay, and uh, so Nicholas, I want to jump to you. I mean, you, man, you have a record. You have a record called Quarantine with Nick. So maybe that kind of answers my question right there. I mean, um, and I, I know the way you produce and you're making music and you're in the moment and you're talking about, you know, things that as, as, you, as you feel, you're very fluid. So did you just, um, but with all that said, did that make this a natural transition for you or was it still a little bumpy trying to figure out how you were going to pivot uh, during this time? It, it was interesting because um, 
initially it was kind of a spoof because my previous album was um, relaxing with Nick. So I found a stock picture of a guy with a hazmat suit on and I just made a spoof of, a, uh, of the cover. But I said, well, I might as well put some music to this since a lot of people, you know, it had some traction. So uh, I had been wanting to do an album with uh, two artists who I've been working with a lot. Uh, Sasha Mazakowski, who um, plays drum machine and uses a looper on this album. And I'm a multi-instrumentalist. So uh, which, what we did was I, we would create real live samples of me playing a bass line or a groove for eight bars and we would loop it and I would layer keys and various things. She's also a singer, so she would sing various hooks and stuff. And also our engineer who also plays modular synth uh, added a lot of uh, modern computer-esque sounds to it. So the three of us uh, who had been wanting to record for a while, uh, right before the stringent lockdown, that weekend of, I think, uh, March 13th, Friday the 13th and Saturday, uh, we just set up in my dining room, which doubles as a music room, and recorded the album over two days at my house. And we mixed it over and mastered it over two weeks. And it's probably been my fastest turnaround in terms of an album to get it out to the people because uh, that was the important thing to me to uh, be amongst the first to actually do an album about the angst and all the anxiety around how these first couple of days and weeks of uh, the lockdown felt. Yeah, I, I love that immediately. You say the 13th and I think we all remember the day. And so for you to say, like, on that day, you actually was, you know, you had a plan and you executed, <laughs> you know, that's, it says a lot uh, and, and great, great work too. I, I love, I love that. Um, so Jamal, how, how about, how about you when, uh, yeah, when COVID was, was coming? So I know in, in radio, you know, um, it's, people have turned to radio, you know, as we do when these type of things happen. And uh, so there's a lot of, you know, you guys are essential workers in that sense so how did you how did you feel when when COVID when COVID hit? You know when um when COVID hit it was really interesting for us in radio because it was kind of uncharted territory many of us didn't know what was going to happen uh, and that's when we t all tapped into the, the the vast opportunities of technology uh, the fact that we could all continue to do our shows uh, could still transmit it to people uh, while social distancing, uh, while being in these spaces individually, even when I'm doing a, you know, a, a syndicated show uh, in Houston every day. I, I do my show every day in Atlanta in the studio. Uh, but Houston, you know, I was recording that show at home and uh, just sitting there right to them. And uh, we say, hey, let's just keep that going because it's, it sounds the same and it feels the same. Uh, but I think with radio, one thing that we also understood during this time is that people more than ever need healing. And, and, and this is the time when radio uh, should really step up and play these songs and play these artists and tell these stories uh, to inspire people and, and also to commemorate people. You know, there were a lot of people in jazz music who passed away um, already due to COVID. You know, um, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody like Walter Roney, um, thinking of so many artists, um, even artists who passed away during the time like McCoy Tyner and so many people, uh, even like a Tony Allen out of Nigeria, needed to be honored, you know, and radio has to do that. Radio, it, I think it's radio's uh, uh, job 
uh, to honor all these greats because they built radio. Um, so, so we've been doing a lot of that at WCLK and in Houston, uh, but in particular WCLK, doing a lot of tributes. Matter of fact, we just did a three-hour musical tribute to Chadwick Boseman last week mm -hmm. and, and, and played a lot of songs and a lot of, told a lot of his story and played a lot of snippets of him and the speeches he made to really show how important this young man was to American culture. Uh, so radio is really stepping up, and, but, but I think public radio uh, in particular uh, has done a, an enormously important job of, of, of really speaking to the consciousness of people during a very dark and dire time like this. Yeah, yeah, I love, love it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Mr. Kirk um, and Gail, I, I, when I get to you, you'll, you'll see, see why I've been thinking of this. Um, but, but Kirk, so how about you? When COVID hit, you're a musician, you're doing your thing. Um, you know, what were your initial thoughts in terms of how you were gonna um, pivot from this? Yeah, um, well, uh, allow me to answer uh, it just in, in just respect for all the answers uh, so far to say that, you know, I am glad to be in this universe right here. Like this is the universe that I choose. If I had a choice, I would choose this one uh, where I'm hearing black professionals, gifted black professionals, you know, talking about their creative and educational objectives, while, you know, our government and the person, you know, representing uh, himself as president goes out talking about how the militia man who shot up people uh, in a peaceful protest was acting in self-defense, you know, as we, beginning with Colin Kaepernick, you know, we, we've been taking a knee to try to, to get people to pay attention. And now we're in an environment where, you know, all bets are kind of off. So, you know, it's almost like you have to pick which universe you, you know, wake up in the morning and say, this is the universe I'm going to live in. So, so this is one right here makes me smile. I can barely, you know, restrain myself, you know, from just getting up and dancing, you know, and I will be out buying... Nicholas' new record, you know, Terry, I know you probably too busy teaching to make a new record, but um, I'm just excited to be a part of this and for, for those reasons in particular. But to answer your question, Billy, I mean, I was kind of, to be redundant, I was kind of a closet hermit anyway. Like, people say, oh, man, he's, you know, people person, he's out, yeah, wow, wow, and people, like, invite me to stuff. Oh, you got to come to this after party, and my wife started laughing. She said... He ain't coming to after party. He don't do after party or before parties, any other kind of party. He's like, he's, when he's working, he's on. When he's not, he's back in that studio. So that's where I am now. And since March 13th, I just been back to my hermit thing. Wow. Okay. Thing. And um, so Miss Gail, so as a, you know, person who represents artists and talent, I mean, I'm sure you're having a bunch of interesting conversations with your clients um, about what they were going to do. And uh, so, yeah, how were you fielding these conversations and just figuring out what was going to happen? Well, I had two different hats on. Um, Lakeisha Benjamin had just released her album, The Cold Train's Pursuance, and had her CD release event at Dizzy's March 11th and 12th. She performed March 11th, it was a sold out crowd and then they shut it down and she never got a chance to finish. So we were a little bit concerned, but um, 
the album has done great and she's gotten all kinds of press. I think the bad news is that artists are not working, but the other side of that is that there's a lot of press that she's gotten because artists are not working. And so everybody has a story they need to tell. And so her story has been getting out there and doing very well. I've had another artist who had an album come out in the middle of all of this, Michael Olatuja. And, and Lagos pepper soup, and that's been doing really well. So, you know, in terms of that, it's been okay. But I have to say that on March 11th, I had six clients who had tours going all the way through November of 2020 that were already set. And on March 13th, they all fell apart. Mm. So not only did my clients lose all of their income for 2020 and two of the clients, Michael Olatuja and Richie Goods were on Broadway at that time working in the pit. So not only did they lose their regular touring jobs, they also lost some of their regular income by not being able to work on the pit. So it brought about a lot of things in terms of how do you keep your brand going if you're not working? How do you sell records? Um, how do you make any money when most of the money now is being made by record companies and streaming services through advertisements and subscriptions. And the, the amount of money that jazz artists make on streaming is not enough to sustain you. So as president of NAPAMA, the North American Performing Arts Managers and Agents, those are the kinds of issues that I took on almost immediately. And that was, what will artists do to earn money? What will agents and managers do? because 15% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> and that's exactly what my income went to on March 13th, and it's kind of still there. Um, so we've been working on how do you safely reopen as an organization, as NAPAMA, how do we safely reopen these places? How do our clients feel comfortable even going back into venues? It turns out that they don't feel comfortable. And so 1,000 seat venues are now being stripped down to 200 seats and the venues can't afford to bring the acts in if they have to strip down to 20% of what their, their venues are. So you're seeing venues going out of business, artists going out of business. It's just really horrible. So the other thing that I've been doing is working with Danny Melnick and Bryce Rosenblum and we created the Jazz Coalition where we had people join that and we've been able to give away $103,000 to artists who we've asked them, we, we're not giving it away because actually we're asking them to compose a piece of music that is reflective of this time. The first time we did it with the first 50, we wanted them to kind of concentrate on the pandemic and how it's affecting them. And the second time, because of the events in the country, we've asked them to kind of concentrate on social justice issues. Mm. Um, and so we gave out the last $53,000 last week, and I'm really proud of that, too. Yeah, I, I love it. And, you know, we're hearing, you know, the creativity from the artists. And I know that a lot of the best music is created by passion and these moments of, of, of passion. So I think it's great that you, um, the organization was able to support, support that. And we definitely want to talk a lot about um, the social justice aspect of what's happening. So it's a big surprise, like in the, well, maybe it wasn't a surprise, but in the midst of the pandemic that um, we'd have this unrest come up. I mean, the, the killings of black men have been happening for, 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 you know, for forever since we've been, you know, in the, in this country. And, you know, with social media has been documented and still, you know, there really hadn't been um, enough to really uh, to, to, to stop it. But these protests after George Floyd have just been um, really 
really brought out a lot of people to respond and and say uh, to speak out against it. So I want to go to you, Kirk, because um, one video that that surfaced I thought was really interested was from Bob James, and I know you have a connection with him, being really instrumental early on in your career, and so it's, you know very prominent, successful white jazz musician, you know, really um, wanted to address how he felt about Black Lives Matter. And he made this video saying how much he supported Black Lives Matter and what Black Lives meant to him. And there's even, and it was really an emotional video. And at the end, he's just listing names of all these Black, um, you know, these these Black musicians. And so I want to know if you saw that video and, um, you know, what was your reaction? Yeah, man, he, Billy, he called the role. It, it was, it was, it was quite emotional for me, you know, to be anywhere on that list. But, you know, the fact that he did it, you know, at, at a cost, I think that when, when we think of the good trouble, you know, that John Lewis spoke about, we talk about people who had skin in the game. And I think, you know, someone like Bob James, you know, he said, you know what, I'm going to set the tone for my white brethren and sistren for what it looks like to, to live in solidarity with people who have, who have been misunderstood, let alone, you know, oppressed for all these years. And, you know, just to, to, to hear the way he did it. And for what I know is to say that he lives in a place called Traverse City, Michigan, and he has for years. You know, he has a place in New York, but this place here is right in the middle of that part of the world, kind of ground zero, you know, for the conservative, you know, even further right uh, ideologies that, that, that buttress white supremacy. So when he walks out of his house and goes to the, you know, <laughs> to the store, he's there with those people. And so I think the fact that we consider him rightfully as, as, as a jazz artist with a profound catalog, et cetera, he's a human being who lives in a neighborhood. And so the fact that he was willing to do that in, in all of those contexts, you know, uh, you know, he's not Superman, but it just was such a beautiful thing. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, thank you. Did anyone else see this video and have, um, you know, have a reaction to it they like to share? I see a couple nods. So uh, how about you, Gail? Oh, I saw it and I was really impressed and, and, and happy to hear him acknowledge um, where the music came from for him and, and his lineage. And it was really good to hear him say that. And Gail, let me, let me mention, add to what you said that, you know, one of the things he talks about and he's talked about for years is the fact that when he came to New York from Marshall, Missouri, okay, that they they didn't have you know the brethren didn't have open arms <laughs> you right. know like the jazz you know literati <laughs> they were like who is this old fake cat you know if you call and they're going to play with us and so you know he had to kind of work for it you know i think you know that in the 50s you know 40s and 50s you know there was that attitude like you know look man we have already been through enough of this and we're you know what we have belongs to us and so we kind of the gatekeepers we get to say who gets in and who doesn't you know and i don't know whether whether or not that's righteous you know we'll let history judge but it is it was what it was so bob james got in there by humility and excellence and the brothers and sisters were like man come on in here sarah vaughn had him you know he was 
or a musical director, you know, so you don't get no further in than that, you know. Yeah, de definitely. Um, Terry, I know it had to be interesting for you. So you released with uh, Social Science, The Waiting Game last year. And I know, I mean, th these social issues are not new to this time, you know, but still like for all this to emerge and um, everyone speaking out, how did you feel? Was it affirming um, that you already had this, this project already out? Well, yeah, uh, it, these issues have been here, right? Since forever. So um, it's getting, of course, you know, so much attention now because white people have finally said, wait a minute, we really have to change this. We don't want to live in a society of some white people anymore that, um, you know, condones this kind of behavior. And, but these issues have been there. So for me to talk about um, Philando Castile shooting, um, and also I'm going to say, you know, black men and black women that have been killed, you know, the, yes. the, the um, habit is to, you know, always cite the men. But um, to talk about Philando Castile shooting, uh, which was just really painful for, you know, to watch, um, it's just repeating itself, you know? So I'm, I'm glad that we're at a moment where everybody's um, really looking at this honestly and collectively. And that's what's, what's so important. Um, so we talked about a lot of issues, mass incarceration. I mean, that's another form of slavery. Um, homophobia, um, gender equity, um, political prisoners, um, the, the Native American uh, genocide. You know, we talked about a lot. Nicholas is, is on the record. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think it's, it's more about, um, at this point, a lot of artists, what I've you know, come to learn uh, is a lot of artists are, are myself included, are good at talking about what's happening at the moment mm -hmm. and are good at reflecting and talking about what's happened in the past. But we have to get even better at imagining a new future and, 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 and really being more transformative in our narratives and in our thinking. And I, I think that that's what I, I would like to try to, you know, do myself and encourage, you know, all of my colleagues uh, and my students to do, because I think that that's the, the place we're at now in society. We, you know, we're hopefully, you know, in a, at a transformational place where we can really start addressing systemic forms of oppression. Um, and I, like I, I talk, like one of our slogans is jazz without patriarchy, but that's really, you know, like gender justice and racial justice are in our mission statement because white male patriarchy is what started this colonization all of that is what started this in the first place so these these issues are interlinked it's not just because i'm a black woman that i see a connection between gender justice and racial justice everybody needs to see that connection and so that's why i'm always calling on, on my brothers to because women have fought you know for racial justice Black women have fought for racial justice and black men need to fight for gender justice, you right. know? And, um, it's, you know, it's an interesting time period because I think people are really waking up to these things. So I'm having a, you know, a lot of great conversations because as Kirk just mentioned, the gatekeepers, and, you know, that hasn't just been racial, that's been with gender too. And um, these things really have to change because 
I just watched that. Uh, some of you probably saw it, but I just watched this morning, and it just has me so angry. Uh, the the uh, on the record documentary, and uh, when you look at the women in the music industry that you know quit because you know on the on the business side on the record label side they quit, you know because they couldn't deal with you know sexual harassment or abuse. Um, there's so many stories like that, not just on the, you know, on the business side, not just on the player side, not just in music, but in the sciences, you know, in, in education everywhere, that how many women have quit doing something and how much potential have we not realized and how much has not been contributed to society due to this craziness. So, yeah. That's yeah. what my head so if, if there would be one area in jazz, because like you mentioned patriarchy, um, and I know that that's, uh, yeah, that's an issue that you address. So if there's one area in jazz that you like to see different, what would that, what would that be? One gender, area? For, the, for gender, yeah, for the gender issue. Well, I mean, I think we have to, you know, we use the word justice instead of equity and equality. I've learned this from you know, one of my dear friends and mentors, Dr. Angela Davis. But um, we use the word justice because it implies transformation. And you can have equality and equity without having transformation. You can have those things without dismantling the system that created it in the first place, right? So when we think of um, you know, gender and jazz, um, just even in, we can take it to, to the race question with education. I mean, I teach more white students than I teach black students. And I have to work very hard to find, I'm, I'm able to give scholarships away at Berkeley. And I have to really work hard to make sure that there's some equity with the scholarships that I give away, some racial equity. And um, it's all there, you know, people just have to really do the work. But I think we, you know, we're dealing with a merit-based system opposed to uh, dealing with potential and really transformation, you know, with, with the culture. So what I'm looking for is a change in culture is, you know, the things that I'm able to bring to music, they're not male things. I mean, not, you know, this is not men's work. So when you ask like, what's important, it's important for everybody to be able to ex be their authentic self, express themselves, you know, learn and be in a nurturing environment without worrying about these things that we've been talking about. Okay. And that's yeah. where, where it's not fair. And it's also with composers and producers and it's just you know the whole area is not just performance either yeah okay thank you and nicholas so i know you've been you know you just have been taking a stand and addressing these issues for a really long time and it seems like you know people are catching up um to you and so um how's that how's that made you feel uh very interesting um yeah because even many years before the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, I was, you know, speaking to these things at a time where I think a lot of folks felt we were on the other side, particularly with the Obama presidency. Uh, and I think what we've found out is that things are kind of the same. And, and in some senses, uh, maybe getting more brazen in terms of um, uh, white nationalism and so forth. Uh, my whole thing is, is always what next and feeling uh, that we need to have more actionable items, more tangibles and um, building the type of foundational, doing the foundational work 
to see how we can actually bring about structural change. Uh, I feel ultimately, if those same power structures stay in place and all we say is vote, which may be important, but it within, we're basically voting for the same structures and the same people who, who have oppressed us for the last 400 years is just not that simple. Uh, and it may seem quite radical, but my position is, is I feel like if black people don't build their own structures, if they don't build their own educational institutions, if they don't have their own businesses, record companies, radio stations, so forth, then we're always asking for permission. We're always begging to be a part. We're always asking for justice from a system which it doesn't benefit to be uh, equitable to us. So I feel like we really need to unify. And, and that's not at the exclusion of other people who want to be a part of it. But certainly we, we need our own stuff ultimately. Otherwise, we're always looking for a handout. And I just don't think that's a very empowered position to be in. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And Jamal, um, so from a radio perspective and the social aspect and what, what did you find um, more things being added to playlists that spoke to the, you know, to these issues in terms of addressing them? Let me unmute myself, sorry. Okay, that. yeah, no problem. Um, you, you saw some of that. You mm -hmm. saw some of that. Um, I know for myself in particular, I went really hard. I made sure that I pulled out a lot of music from now uh, and yesterday uh, that really speaks to, 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 to this moment in American history, which really is something that is not unique to jazz. Because when you look at the history of jazz, like I was just on a panel about a couple of months ago uh, talking about the uh, album with um, with uh, Max Roach and uh, and uh, Oscar Brown Jr. Uh, we insist freedom now. Um, we insist freedom now, which which is uh, celebrating 40 years. Jazz musicians have always always had a strong voice uh, in the community, and not only in the community, but have always spoken uh, to those topical issues. I mean, you've had songs from like people like Art Blakey, uh, literally addressing the freedom rides, uh, right during that time of the Freedom Rides. You know, he was doing it in real time. Um, and you look at these artists. I mean, uh, Gail uh, is representing uh, Michael Latouja, an artist that I support uh, on my show. And uh, his album, Lagos Pepper Soup, you know, is really uh, going back to that energy, you know, taking us back to that energy. Nicholas has always done that. Uh, Terry Lynn has always done that. Uh, Kirk has always done that. There's always been that thing that artists have said uh, to address what's now. So radio. You know, when you look at jazz radio, first of all, jazz radio is kind of an anomaly because it's not like a whole, you don't have a whole bunch of, of choices. You know, you a, look on your hands and there are only a few jazz radio stations across America. So you really can't gauge, you can't get a, a strong understanding of how jazz is responding. You have to kind of go to individuals. And I know at WCLK, uh, we did a lot in Atlanta because you got to think also Atlanta uh, is, has been the hub of the civil rights movement that has fed us in Atlanta. And the fact that we lost two mighty pillars this summer, uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian and uh, John Lewis, we had to speak to that moment. We had to speak to, to our city, you know, and, 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 and heal our city and give them uh, what we call sonic south. Uh, so that's what we do at WCLK. We've been doing that for a long time. And uh, we encourage other radio stations to... Uh, really get on board. And I have to give love to an organization, Jessica Weber, 
um, who has her organization where she does all these meetings uh, centered around radio and their involvement in um, social justice. Uh, but yeah, we've been doing our part at WCLK. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Terry, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned political prisoners and uh, I know on the waiting game, you had an opportunity to have Mumia Abu Jamal um, on a track where he actually recorded, um, did a recording um, for you from, from jail. Can you talk about that experience and why that was so important? Was that, um, you know, difficult to, to make happen? I was putting that track together and I had various speeches from different people and had to get clearance. So um, in his case, I, I found his, his attorney, um, Angela Davis, actually helped me reach directly to all the people that I had recorded and sampled for the record. The one person I couldn't get clearance for was James Baldwin, which was hurt me bad because <laughs> that was like the one I wanted the most, but we just couldn't get the clearance on that. But um, with Mumia, I, I reached out to his attorney and she reached out to him and he, he's, you know, I guess went online and listened to some of my music and uh, this, you know, definitely wanted to do it, but he didn't want me to pay um, the prison system, the $200 they were going to charge me to use his voice. So, um, you know, which was an act of resistance, you know, in itself. So he said that he would re-record whatever I wanted him to. Um, and he just did it over the phone. And uh, I just, you know, it's, it, for me, it's a really beautiful moment on the record, you know, because then he it was able, because he was doing, he was able to put our name, you know, the band name in his recording as well. And he was, you know, acting like a DJ, which is what he, you know, he has his radio show, prison radio show. So um, I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's great that I didn't, you know, fund at all, because I would have paid them but I'm very happy that I didn't fund at all the prison that is incarcerating him. Yeah, I thought that was a very nice touch, especially, you know, you talk about him being a radio host and hearing him that way on the outro to the track. You know, I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was good. Um, so um, Nicholas, back to you though, and just with the music, like with, quarant with quarantine with Nick, um, like was there one particular song in particular that was really important um, for, that, for that record that spoke to these issues? Uh, well, we address uh, a lot of the social and political themes, uh, population control, social distancing. I uh, even wrote a ballad called Tenderona. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the album is an experience. I almost look at it like a movie. Um, recorded over two days. The album, as you hear, it, is in sequence as we created the music. So I didn't go into the session with any pre-composed ideas. We basically made up each song in real time as we go, as we went through. Um, and the issue was how to whittle down two days of two five-hour jams into an album of 90 minutes or so. So basically, as you're going through the album and listening, that is how the music unfolded. That's how it felt. The album sort of starts off with a bit of angst and uncertainty and discomfort, which is exactly how those first moments of the quarantine felt. And then it sort of warms up around Tenderona and there's an acceptance of, well, this is how it is. And then it's just vibe and groove throughout the rest of the album. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely, it's interesting because in listening to the record, I feel um, when I was going into the record, I was thinking it might put me, I wasn't sure what kind of mood it was going to put me in, you know, but um, but it was definitely a mood. It wasn't a negative space. I think it was, uh, I still, you know, felt good. I, I, I love the, all the different types of instrumentation and, you know, electronic nature of um, the way you approached it. So, but I appreciated your, you know, your, um, your take on it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, uh, so Kirk, I also want to talk to you about um, just as a jazz uh, musician, as we would have a conversation about just, you know, the state of jazz music today and, and how things have kind of evolved and working um, with other genres and, and everything. Uh, you've been very fortunate to do a couple of different, you know, a couple of different, different things earlier today. We mentioned you know, Whitney Houston and, you know, being a part of that, that huge, you know, historical record, I will always love you. And so I'm kind of wondering with all the different, you know, you work with Quincy Jones, I mean, just all these different, different people. So have these um, opportunities, have they been kind of awkward or difficult ever? Um, or, you know, how, or were they situations where they sought you out specifically for what you bring to the table? And so it was kind of a natural place. Like, how, how do you feel in general? Yeah, you know, well, you know, Billy, the, the first uh, connection I had with jazz proper was in high school when the band director welcomed us all there and he said, young man, yeah, I heard about you, you know, I heard you pretty good, blah, blah. So would you like to be in the jazz band? And I said, no. <laughs> and I was serious, man. I was like, Jackson 5, yes. The Bar Case, absolutely. Earth, Wind & Fire, big time. Jazz, no. <laughs> You know, because I really didn't identify with jazz because jazz wasn't the music of my era, so to speak, right? And so I, I can understand, you know, kids nowadays when they listen to hip hop, like you don't have to call it hip hop, just play it and they know it. And they say, well, this is the music of my era. And they're right. But what they don't realize is that there's a line that connects all of this black music, you know? It's just like Peyton said, you know, we don't, necessarily know what to call it right but i know when i hear it's just my imagination or when i hear you know otis redding singing you know tribal tenderness it's like to me that music speaks to my soul and it always has like you know i never i didn't start out trying to play like coltrane i, I was trying to play like hank crawford or or like you know aretha franklin so later the challenge of the virtuosity that goes along with Charles Lloyd, you know, who was also from here, you know, from Memphis, that that came later as I matured. But as I go back, man, there's something about the Temprees and the Shilites that really speaks to a deep place within me that connects all those dots. And I think on one level, you know, and again, I'm not the one to speak on this. I think my uh, my friends here are better suited. But on one level, when when Bird and Dizzy and those guys were developing that music with that virtuosity being at the core of it, and people couldn't dance, they had to sit down and listen. Part of that was making a statement to say, you must pay attention to us. You must acknowledge the the genius of Black art. You know, it's like the brother, the, you know, the white brothers and sisters who would come and, and, and hang out on 42nd Street or wherever, 
you know, they, they, they were coming from their society gigs where they once again were privileged to have the best paying gigs. And, and these cats, you know, it's like, this is our little thing we got down at, you know, whichever jazz hole in the ground, don't come up in here. <laughs> you know, so they, the way they did that in one sense was to make the music too hard for them to, you know, for them to just jump up and play. So again, I know this, these are all things that we contextualize, but, but I, I think to answer your question, man, this music is also beautiful and, and it all ties in together. So I never felt, especially first place I played was church, you know, so I, I never felt that kind of awkwardness or like, oh man, I'm, you know, so what they going to think. I was always about trying to touch people's hearts. And, and later on I was trying to, and I'm still today, as I just finished learning this transcription of a Robbie Coltrane solo, beat me up because it's in all these crazy time signatures but of 26-2. Yeah, I mean, I always felt like it's, you got to hit them in the heart, man. You got to touch them. Yeah. Yeah, you touched on so many different things that are really interesting. I mean, one that when you're in middle school that you're in a jazz band. I know there are definitely schools. I mean, my kids have gone to a school that had a, a jazz band, but we know that music has been taken out of schools. But um, that was interesting because as a, a youth, you know, you weren't necessarily focused on are, you know, you didn't, you weren't gravitating, uh, gravitating towards jazz, but you had an opportunity to do so. So that expanded your respect for the genre. And to me, I feel like that also contributes to what Nicholas has been talking about, about Black American music. And, you know, of course we have different genres, but the more we separate them, you know, it's like, you know, it's not doing a service to, to all of them. And then if you think of today's generation, that, you know, while there may be sampling or everything, if they don't have the rich history of the music and there is a separation, it continues to, you know, kind of foster, kind of, kind of foster that. So um, before I ask Nick about, you know, Black American music, I'm wondering if there's anyone else on the panel that, you know, really uh, understands where he's coming from, you know, when he talks about the importance of labeling, how these genres are labeled. And I, I will also say too, like within that debate, you know, I know there's a time we had Black music charts, and I even heard recently um, in this time that there was talk of um, maybe taking the urban name off of, you know, the black music since a lot of it is pop. And so we see that that really makes a lot of sense to, to quit marginalizing the music. But however, in terms of, um, you know, these other titles that would have black in it or urban or something that implies black, it kind of helps assure that in the future, people don't forget like the origins of the music. So it is kind of really interesting um, per, per perspective, but like, does, yeah, does anyone want to comment on, you know, just how, how they feel about how the song, the, the, the genres are, are titled and, you know, whether or not uh, that's hurting, you know, hurting the culture, especially for jazz. Okay, Jamal. Yeah. Well, you know, being in, in radio, we're, we're like the hub of titles because, you know, so many titles come from the business side more than anything. And, and titles really are, in my opinion, in my opinion, titles really are just a way to uh, box something up, to box a particular energy up. Uh, you look at all the different movements in jazz, you know, when we started with uh, Louis Armstrong and then you move into the big band era and you move into the to the bebop era, then you move into the post-bop era, then you move into the hard bop era. You know, you it, it all these different things. I mean, I, I heard stories of of, of uh, Dizzy Gillespie being, you know, chastised for letting you know these people call the music bebop, uh, but it was because that that term 
has energy. And I think people sometimes forget the concept of energy. And when you look at the energy of, of the word hip hop, when you look at the energy of the word funk, you know, these words have a particular feeling uh, that gets you closer to that energy, but it would never get you right on top of that energy because that energy is hard to really describe. So when you move up to now and you look at jazz and you have so many different styles of jazz, be they contemporary, smooth, uh, straight ahead, um, I play them all. I played them all in my 25 years in radio. One thing I can say is, just like Brother Kirk said, there's a through line through all of them. You know, I, I, somebody just said recently, I, a, a person just called me recently and said, you know, I've never really liked smooth jazz. You know, and me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm into like a lot of heady sounds, you know, so I like the heady funk records, like when, when Nicholas did a tribute to Junie Morrison or, or something like that. But I said, why do you like smooth jazz so much? And they said, well, during this COVID period, it's been comforting. It makes me feel like good. And I've never liked this music. I, I can't say I'm a smooth jazz fan. And I said, well, you know what? If you like the music because of that reason, then God bless that music. You know, and that's what I tell folk all the time. Like, it's not about titles. Titles don't matter. You can call it scooby doo whatever. And if it has a feeling, then it's all about that feeling. You know, I, I come from also a different world in jazz where we were pioneering a lot of different sounds in the 90s. So we were pioneering Deep House. We were pioneering uh, Neo Soul. We were pioneering a lot of different sounds. And we were like the jazz musicians at one particular time. We hated the term Neo Soul. Neo Soul was like a, you, you, you told us when we walked into clubs with India and Anthony and Avery, and they were like, oh, those are Neo Soul artists. We were like, no, they're soul artists. You know, that was how we responded to it. But over time, I've come to understand what that music means because I have now young interns who are 18, 19 years old coming to me at Clark Atlanta University. And they're saying our favorite music is Neo Soul. Neo Soul is like their old school. So they say Neo Soul, Neo Soul, Neo Soul. And I'm like, if that conjures up a good energy, then you listen to some Neo Soul and you call it Neo Soul. So yeah. I feel like, I feel like people can, people can call it whatever they want, but at the end of the day, good music is good music. Right, thanks. Man, man let, me, let me just say, Jamal, thank you for saying that because I, I really have learned, grown a lot, you know, in this, this area you were talking about. I was touring once with Peter White, who was a quintessential smooth jazz artist. I never considered myself that, right? Like I was trying to be Grover Washington, but all of a sudden I was in smooth jazz, right? But Peter has always been a smooth jazz artist. Like you put in a dictionary as his picture. And he's and he said once, he said, Man, I just I can I just be who I am. He's like, I never grew up, I did not know who George Benson was. I grew up in England, all I heard was rock and roll. I heard the Beatles, you know, and et cetera. And so the music I play came out of that. And people hear his music, I don't care what color, where they come from. And if they're listening without and again, the baggage that we kind of many, many times show up with this baggage. They listen without that and they go, man, that's actually relaxing, you know, or that kind of takes me out of this, you know, I've just been working, I've been stressed out and that music blesses them. So to me, man, I learned a big lesson that day to say, hey, there's no judgment. It's just like, it is what it is, right? Yeah. Um, so can I, can I add something though? Yes. Uh, just on labeling, um, because I do think it's important for musicians to um, create their own narrative. And that's a, been a problem with 
business labels, press, you know, trying to create the narrative for the art that the musicians and artists create. So I, I like it when people label their own music. Mm. Um, you know, like Duke Ellington said, jazz, we stopped using that word in 19, you know, 57 or whatever year it was sometime in, back then. And he said, um, you know, his music was freedom of expression. And that really stuck with me because I think, you know, creative uh, jazz players and composers, um, that's really what it is. It's freedom of expression. And it's, you know, you're pulling from this potpourri of all these, you know, places. Um, Wayne Shorter says jazz means no category. He refuses to be categorized. And, and when you listen to these people play or write, you hear all these influences of, you know, various places, including the classical world. So, I mean, Abby Lincoln said jazz is a spirit. Um, Jack DeJanet says that his music is multi-directional music. He doesn't like jazz either. So <laughs> it's just interesting to me that, you know, we keep coming back to this discussion, but, you know, I, I, I will say, and I know you're going to ask Nicholas about this, but it is totally all about this through line because, and it's not just jazz, it's most American music. You know, maybe not, you know, I haven't studied enough to know about Appalachian music and, you know, all of that, but most American music that's not Western European based has come from the contributions of people that, you know, created work songs, field hollers, spirituals, the blues. You know, if we start there, everything seems to have come from that. So in essence, <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm kind of like, what are we talking about here? And when I'm, I'm, I'm on the board of the Recording Academy, which is now taken away urban, uh, which is great. Um, but, you know, I'm sitting, you know, in a room often with uh, more white people than black people, but it's, it's getting balanced, actually. But it's just, I'm looking at this thing, you know, where everybody's talking about this music. Um, I don't know, from a, from a place of uh authority or you know or hierarchy and you know you know high power business people and and i'm like looking you know and we're talking about well if we have 20 there's a 23 percent of african americans in this country it's something like that. it's actually more like 13 percent in this country and we're okay with um our numbers of having 23%, you know, represented in, in a music entity. And I'm thinking, yeah, but this music entity is based on and built mm. upon, you know, black art, black creativity, black consciousness, you know, so 13 to 20% is just funny to me, you know, yeah. so it's just that these things are comp compound and complex and uh, there's a lot to think about here. You know, it's more than a label. I think it's a history that we have to continually look look at and dive deep deeply into. Right. And to Jamal's point, you know, yeah. that energy thing is important too. Like to, to piggyback on what you were saying, Terry, that, that Jamal you know, presented it as an energy that you know is a lot more complex than just labels. Right. 
Yeah. And, and Nicholas, I know you're over there patting your foot. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So what would you say your intention has been, you know, with, um, you know, advocating for not using the, the label jazz music and instead black American music? Uh, basically, as, as uh, everybody has uh, spoken to, um, it's about restoring awareness first that it is black music because though it's obvious to all of us, I think in general, in terms of, in terms of the general populace, people don't know that. And black people in particular, um, they don't know it's their music because they look at who owns and runs the festivals and the clubs and the majority of the people in the audience and they think it's not our music. And don't get me wrong, I'm happy to see anyone support the music but I think the fact that it is black music might be the most important part of it. Because as Terry Lynn said, this music started um, as Phil Holler's work songs. When black people were transported here, the Africans were enslaved, they weren't allowed to speak their native languages. So they developed a new language and a new way of speaking to each other and just connecting to the ties that were broken during the enslavement period. That was their way of reconnecting to Africa. Right. So to me, it's not, genre is not even a black aesthetic. It's more of a Western European type of aesthetic. Uh, black people think more tribally. So really it's about where you're from. It's about geographic location and who you've come through. What master drummers have you trained under? Yeah. What ages? Uh, have you come forth and where are you? If we're talking about Black American music, Detroit has a certain sound and energy and a vibration to it. The music musicians in St. Louis have a certain vibe. The West Coast musicians have a certain thing. The New Orleanian musicians have a thing. Uh, Chicago, all these different territories have different energies and different ways in which they respond to their environment and the cultural surroundings. Um, it even goes as far as like weather, how that affects the temperament in terms of how musicians play. The tempos in New York uh, and the vibe and the energy tend to, tended to be faster and more frenetic than say in the South. Uh, places that have lakes have more of a calm still vibe that, as opposed to places with rivers. So all these different factors go into how the music sounds, who's creating it and who it comes through. So I, really, when we look at oppression, one of the first things we have to analyze is language, how we oppress in terms of language, in terms of our thought, how we oppress. These are the real hard issues. It's, it's easy to free someone from chains or from the plantation, but to change how you think and to think that we were stripped of our native languages and are forced to speak language of people who oppressed us or deal in spiritual practices of people who oppressed us, how we reconnect to those things, ultimately, in many cases that we invented and how we find our way back to our roots. And the music has always been a big part of that, how Black people, how Africans reconnect to the truth and the totality of who they are as a people. So that's why me saying Black, music, black American music is important because I think jazz, obscures that fact. You have jazz programs all over the world now. And 
people can literally get a jazz degree, play jazz festival, do all this stuff, and never deal with a Black person ever. Never deal with the oppression and the things these artists had to go through to give us this music. And I find that to be highly problematic. So for me to call it Black music uh, is basically a way to acknowledge who gave us this music and why. And that's not to say who can or can't play it, but it's important to acknowledge the roots if you're gonna do this seriously. Yeah, when you mentioned the global, I was gonna ask you about, about that, just considering like, for instance, Black American Symphony premiered in Prague. And uh, I'm just wondering, you know, with, uh, you know, being in other countries and seeing how people are responding to the music to that point, did that have anything to do with you realizing like, wait a minute, you know, like the connection is not, you know, it's not happening. Yeah, uh, again, I, I feel like uh, I feel like there's a lack, an overall lack of awareness, but it, it enlightens me to see people change. I know many uh, institutions of higher learning are thinking about um, eschewing the jazz part of their music programs and saying they're Black music programs which I find to be appropriate because that's ultimately what it is. Yeah, uh, thank you. And so, so Gail, like if we, you know, kind of segue into the more of a discussion of the widening of jazz music, I mean, there are a lot of factors that, um, that could be considered. Uh, we know, you know, one time that black artists didn't even uh, appear on the covers of, of, of their music. And I mean, I just today took a look at like the bill, one of Billboard's jazz charts and number one was Frank Sinatra and, you know, um, and so, you know, it's really interesting, but so like as a, as a business person, do you find that you are often fighting on behalf of your, your clients to make sure, you know, to, you know, that, uh, that they're best represented? Um, well, yeah, because it's always a fight on behalf of your clients, but I want to just piggyback on something mm -hmm. that Nicholas talked about, um, because uh, yesterday was the second anniversary of the ascension of Randy Weston to the ancestors. And he never called it jazz either, but he always called it African rhythms. And so it really plays right into what Nicholas is talking about in that he took it even farther than our, the transatlantic slave trade and said, if you really want to know what it is we're playing now, it really stem, it's, it's that same through line. That, that you all have been talking about. And when you go to Africa, especially if you have the, the honor and privilege of going to Africa with Randy, I was his lawyer for 16 years. You hear it, you hear the jazz, you can go out and hear what they would be calling traditional music and you hear it. It's the same thing really. And, it, and it's, it's just encouraging and it's really heartwarming to know that, that through all that we went through, we didn't lose that. You know, we, we still actually have that. But we're in an industry where there are no black record companies. There, you know, there are no black owned radio stations. There are no, there's, I don't know any black owned agencies that actually will, will go out and get gigs for, for musicians. I know management companies, but you know we're kind of reliant on all of these other things to make happen for our clients. There are some black DJs in various places and, and it's really good to know them. And so you can get airplay, but that does not always translate to sales. So you're, you're, you're always trying to think of a way to brand your artists. And I think it has to start with owning your own stuff. 
You have to own your own masters. I, I don't have a single client anymore on my roster who is looking for a record deal with somebody. Now we might license it to somebody for a limited period of time for some reason, but I really do think that the key has to be ownership of your master because like Nicholas, I frankly don't care what you choose to call your own music. I'm down with Nicholas wanting to call it Black American music. I'm down with Randy wanting to call it African rhythms. So that part is not as important as what I think like to think of as brand borrowing. You know, if there's more money in calling it jazz, then you take your Black American music and you go to a jazz festival. You know what I'm saying? And so you don't you have to fight with them about making it the Black American music festival. Not right now, but you just have to fight to make sure that all of what you call it is included. And that if you own your own master, I mean, because you, you just have to think about, we've gotten so used to going out on the road with a whole big box of CDs and selling our CDs on the road, because that's the only place that, that CDs are getting sold. Because if you're streaming the music, you're, you're getting four one hundredths of a penny for every stream. It's like you literally have to stream two million times to get the same price that you would for two CDs if you were able to sell them. But we didn't think about that hard enough because now we are not working and we're not selling CDs. And so the only people who have made a lot of money are the record companies and the streaming companies because everybody is streaming everybody's music, but not so much that jazz artists are making any money. And so that's kind of what I'm looking at. I'm trying to figure out a way to to upset the whole streaming income thing. And, and that's gonna take all of us to, to, to figure out how we can do that because there is money in streaming, we're just not getting it. Yeah, so recently, um, and I saw someone make this comment on social media. I don't know if any of you guys recently saw the Brandy versus Monica versus, um, you know, battle. And so where they're, you know, they're taking two artists and having them play song for song. And, and so anyhow, it is really interesting to see what happens the next day in terms of the streaming of their music. So you have these two catalog artists with 25 plus years. Um, they still, you know, gifted, still making great music, great fan bases. But but to go back like um, a day later, I went to the Apple Music charts and saw like in the top 150 that there are at least at least 20 songs um, between the two of them, you know, that were in the, in the top 150. And then I think earlier, if I had gone, like it, um, had looked earlier, I'd heard like in the top of 40, that 30 of the songs were from these two. So that actually, I think was really cool that that, that worked out, but, uh, but we've been talking about streaming a lot. Definitely streaming is something that's very prevalent in the, in the music industry. And I'm just wondering, like, I don't know if this is a question for Jamal or not, but what do you what do you think um, for what are you know there are some streaming uh, initiatives that we should be looking at for jazz um, because you know that that's how people I mean my aunt had an 80th birthday party you know recently and like we it was streamed we we made a playlist and that and that was it so what 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 could we be doing you know to help um, jazz artists in in this realm? Well. Um... One thing, I actually have some friends in the UK who actually uh, work at Jazz FM, which is uh, the biggest jazz radio station in the world, uh, Jazz FM based in London. And, um, and they started a jazz streaming service called Jazzed, J-A-Z-Z-E-D, uh, to kind of combat what we're talking about right now, the lack of, of jazz representation in the world of streaming. 
Uh, but everyone's coming up with the same issue that Gail just pointed out. Uh, you know, you can get people to stream, uh, 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 I mean, Pharrell said uh, that he had how many streams of Happy, one of the biggest songs in the, in the world at the time, and he only made like a few thousand dollars off of it, you know? So that, that lets you know that streaming is just, it really needs to be questioned, and, and, and I think everyone needs to kind of knock on the door of these streaming companies and say, hey, what's going on with this revenue? Like, we need to talk about this collectively. Um, because there's no way that an artist can make money off of streaming, uh, especially a jazz musician. Uh, but I think also when you look at, if we could connect things back to the conversation of titles, uh, sometimes, and, and, and this is just me playing devil's advocate, uh, sometimes you may not want to call your music jazz. Sometimes you may not want to say, I'm making a jazz record. And, and I, I tell, I've been telling artists this for a little while because I, I actually consult a lot of artists because I'm also a musician. Uh, I have my own band, The Dangerfield Newbies. We put out music. I've put out music independently. We've had music placed on TV shows like BM Mary Jane. Uh, so I understand the process. And even starting an independent label at 21, I saw how this world would take over the major label world eventually. And that was back in the 90s. Uh, but one thing I tell uh, a lot of folk who come to me is like, don't call your music jazz. Call it, call it just what it is. I mean, you look at like a young band like Snarky Puppy, uh, who I started playing from the very beginning. Uh, when you listen to Snarky Puppy, their music literally is like a, a culmination of the Crusaders and Herbie Hancock and Bob James and George Benson in that 70s jazz funk, jazz fusion period. Uh, but they never said we're a jazz band. Yeah. So, so, so they essentially kind of skipped all these jazz folk and kind of walked into this jam band world, you know, that jam band world where you can play to thousands of people. And I host every Snarky Puppy show and I've seen them start from 50 people to now playing a room of 5,000. Um, and they do that like typically now. Now there are a lot of other elements that play into that. And, and that, that's for another discussion, but they never call their music jazz. And I think sometimes a jazz artist may want to just stay away from that and just make the music and let the people uh, call it that. Because a lot of jazz artists, unfortunately, have painted themselves in a corner. Uh, that's all people know them for. They just know them as a jazz musician. But there are jazz musicians who can play rock, funk, hip hop, uh, so much music. And I think people like Nicholas and, and Roy Hargrove and Robert Glasper and Esperanza and Terry Lynn um, and, and Kirk especially, uh, all kind of came in and said, let's just give people a feeling and, and, and let people kind of put that on it. So back to the streaming piece, maybe that could help. Maybe that can assist. Uh, I mean, but even in the world of jazz, uh, there's a new genre in jazz called UK jazz. If you look at like streaming services now, you go to UK jazz and UK, the UK jazz scene is probably one of the most vibrant uh, jazz scenes in the world right now. Young jazz scene with the likes of Ubaya Garcia and and um, um, uh, Tom Mish with you said- Oweto Kent, you know, man. Uh, there, there, there's some serious stuff going on over there in the UK. Uh, so much so that the typical listener now in England to jazz music is about 25 years old. So they're streaming, they're listening that's, to- Yeah, that's because of streaming, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah, and they're going to the gigs and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're supporting it. And they look like kids who would normally be listening to trap music. But it's because they see people that look like them 
And a lot of those kids aren't calling it jazz. They're just calling it whatever they feel at the time. But that's also because of the culture of Europe, especially London. London is a, is a, is a culture that has a lot of uh, uh, hyper genres and sub genres and a lot of lines are being blurred musically in, in London. Uh, and, and in America, music is very segregated. Music is, you can't play jazz and play R&B at the same time even though a lot of musicians in the past have shown us that's the case. So maybe back to the streaming piece, uh, maybe it's how we do it and also how we connect with the audience, especially the younger audience. Yeah, I, I, I like what, that. Okay. Can, um, I, can I just say one little thing? I just feel mm -hmm. like it's also a philosophical discussion because um, about who calls themselves a jazz musician or who doesn't because um, there's a history you know, behind a music and a language that was created and so some people feel like if you haven't studied any of that history and you don't know any of the language that was created and you're learning, you know, language, but, you know, only contemporary language um, that maybe, you know, maybe it really isn't jazz. I mean, there's no shame in calling your music jazz for sure. I and mean, there's a history behind that, that most, most, um, most jazz musicians that I know uh, really respect, care for, love, lift up, you know. And so, you know, if you bring up like Snarky Puppy as an example, um, and, you know, I'm, I serve on the Academy with Michael League and was just texting with him yesterday. I don't personally know enough about him personally to know how much history he has studied. But if you have somebody that's considered a band that's considered a jam band, it's quite possible that they might not call themselves jazz musicians because they, they have not studied any of this history. They do not know anything about all the things that made this music kind of what it is. So that could be just a reason. But then there are also people that, you know, call themselves jazz musicians that haven't, that can't play a blues, really. I mean, really can't, you know what I mean? That can play over one chord and because, and, you know, I'm thinking of some, maybe some, you know, British artists or people that are coming to mind, but, you know, they can play over one chord and they can improvise. So jazz doesn't just mean improvise. It's, it's a language and a history that's attached to it. What, what, what that improvis improvisation, how it has evolved over the years. So I am not a purist whatsoever. Anybody could tell by any of my records, but I am enough of one that it's difficult for me to embrace, you know, somebody that's calling themselves a jazz musician that has not done any of the studying and who's, you know, mm. he doesn't, can't even, you know, can't play a four bar, eight bar form, can't keep the form on the blues. I have played with people that are that. And so I see them as something else. Like, you know, what do you want to call it? Contemporary pop musicians? I don't know. But I see them as something else. Not jazz. But they're in, you know, nominated for Grammys and stuff in the mm. jazz category so these are just a lot of philosophical things you know to discuss because there's you know many people that play you know over groove music and they're not all equal everybody's not kirk whalen you know what i mean yeah <laughs> so um honestly that's you know 
Yeah, no, thank you. It was a really interesting discussion. I want to mention a, a comment I have from one of the Living Legend Foundation members, Ms. Jackie Reinhardt. She said, he who names the thing controls the thing. And so I think with the branding and marketing aspect of it, and like you just mentioned, Grammy nomination categories, you know, that that kind of stuff lingers, but it's really a, you know, a deep conversation. But um, I wanted to also pose a question regarding something that, um, you know, wonder if more jazz artists are considering. Uh, we saw Erica Badu right at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, she did this bedroom concert series charging $1. You know, I saw some people online saying, well, who's the money going to go to? And I was like, you know what? I love Erica Badu so much. Who, you know, who cares? Like, whatever, just support this goddess. Um, you know, and she then she realized, okay, it cost a hundred thousand dollars. So there goes my money. You know, there's that, and I had to pay all these people. So she went up three dollars, but still three dollars. That's like that's nothing. Um, and the number of people you can reach by holding it online, you know, it's, it's kind of incredible. So I'm wondering, um, has, is this something that any of the panelists have considered, have explored? You know, um, doing these concerts uh, that you know you could charge a subscription, a small fee for people to view. Man, let, let me jump in here just because I know I, I had carved out till four o'clock and I'm oh, okay. I'm sorry. Like beating me down now to get okay. out. But so yeah. I'll make my last comment and then leave it to the pros. <laughs> but uh, just to say, you know, man, I, I, I'm looking for some hope in this area. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, man, it, it is. I wake up and I decide, man, I'm not going to I'm not going to succumb to the, you know, to the negativity today because I don't see a way out. And I think, you know, in, a, in spiritual terms, that's the best place to be because, you know, then God is able to, to move. You know, I have a lyric to a song. I have a song called uh, Can't Stay Blue. It says, uh, you know, at the end of me, Lord, I've found you. Uh, since you set me free, I can't, just can't stay blue. You changed my life. Now I depend on you. Uh, everything's all right. Can't stay blue. Like Everything is all right. Like I have to determine that I'm not going to succumb to the negativity, but but if you, like I said, you walk by faith, because, man, when I look around, the things that we've been discussing, <laughs> Jamal, man, I'm like, you know, hell, you know, how do we, how, you know, people, we devalue, we, our art has been devalued to such an extent now that Pandora is out of the box, you know, where people want this music for free. They just, they just don't think about it. And, uh, and we keep pushing back going like, no, you, you know, this is Erica Badu, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I just, we have to keep moving forward. And really, I think more than ever, we have to think in terms of a group, like we have to all really, uh, all labels aside, like let's all fight for each other. Let's, as much as we possibly can, man, you know, uh, to, to really coalesce around each other's well-being. Cause that, like, I'm gonna put this out there, you know, Beyonce is filthy rich. She might be the last one. <laughs> like, ain't, ain't, none of us are going to be filthy rich. Or, maybe I'm wrong about that. So, like, let's drop that and let's talk about lifting each other up. And, and you know, as long as my bills are paid, not, you know, I, I got a car to drive to the cleaners with, I'm good. But let's, how, how do we lift each other up and figure this out? You know, um, as Gail was saying, let's let our, our labels to where we give each other the secrets and, you know, whatever that looks like, I don't know, but I refuse to succumb to, uh, to like, this is the apocalypse, you know, <laughs> like, this is it. We're never, ever going to be able to make a living at this, you know, it, it's just, that can't be it. 
So, okay. Well, well, thank you, Brother Kirk. And you know what, everyone, I appreciate your patience, your engagement in this whole time. Um, I know we have exceeded <laughs> the time that we asked you guys for, and I really uh, appreciate you all and uh, all your, your commentary. So with that note, um, we, can wrap, we can wrap it up. If everyone could um, please share your social media handle or however you would like for people to, to keep in touch with you, please, um, I want to make sure they, they have that information. But thank you guys. Thank you so much. This is incredible. So, um, Jam Jamal, um, can you go first? Well, I'm sorry, Kurt. I know someone blowing you up right now. Can you go give your social media? And, um... Yes, uh, at Kirk Whalem. That's an interesting name, right? The name Kirk means church. My folks did not know that, but uh, that's what it is. And uh, that name is K-I-R-K and then W-H-A-L-U-M. You can type it into any social media. Okay. All right, brother. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Okay, um, Ms. Ms. Terry Lynn, uh, please, can you share your information? Um, you mean like website or something? Oh, yeah, however <laughs> you, would, know my handle. you would like for people to keep keep in touch with yeah, you. Okay, Everyone's okay. not on, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm on all those things. I think you just look me up and it'll come up. I think I'm T.L. Carrington on Twitter. I don't remember my name on Instagram, I, I, but it's probably my name, Terry Lynn okay. Carrington. But um, anybody, you know, www.terrylynncarrington.com. But I'm, I was just dying to hear Nicholas's thought on the last. So I hope that when he gives his oh. handles, he'll also give us some parting words of wisdom. Yes, I, I love it. Anyone else who would, who would like to, when your turn comes come around, please do so. And Terry, like Terry, are you, uh, are you okay? Yeah, are oh. you, do you have any other commentary to talk Oh, no, no, I'm good. Okay. Guys, I, I, I actually okay. have to leave. I'm okay. producing alternative venues for jazz on Facebook that is actually starting. Oh, like I'm sorry. Right now. Okay, thank you. Oh, yeah. Call me, Gail. I want to talk to you on that. I want you to do it. And you too, <laughs> okay. Nicholas and Kurt and, and everybody. Bye. I'm so sorry, but I do have to run. Okay, thank you. So, Gail, um, your email, can we share that or what, what information? Yes, I think I just put it on. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so Gail's email is Gail Boyd, G A I L B O Y D, at gailboyd.com. So, Happy to have her. Thank you so much. And let's see who else we have. Jamal. How's it going, Jamal? What would you like to, to leave with people? Leave well, yeah, people. folks can uh, contact me at uh, Jamal Ahmed 19. It's J-A-M-A-L-A-H-M-A-D, the number 19 at gmail.com. Uh, you can also catch me at Jamal Ahmed, at Jamal Ahmed on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. Um, also, you can listen to me every weekday from 2 to 7 p.m. in Atlanta uh, at WCLK.com and also uh, 2 to 7 CST in Houston uh, at kpdu.edu. Uh, uh, um, also, my band, the Dangerfield Newbies, we are releasing a new single this month. And actually, we're doing an uh, EP that's a jazz tribute uh, to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And what we're going to do is actually do a, a, an entire album with the second line New Orleans band as we do, as we pay tribute to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So the first single drops uh, this month and uh, the album should be dropped at the top of the year. Awesome. So Dangerfield well, Newbies. A well-deserved tribute to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Thank you so much. Okay. And, and, and Nicholas, our, our anchor, uh, your socials and then whatever commentary you have about, you know, these concerts are what, something that the jazz artists could be doing sure uh i'm by my name on instagram nicholas payton at nicholas payton i think i'm at Paynick on twitter uh i've currently been on facebook jail since april for uh, espousing some alternative views so 
as well. Really? Okay. <laughs> that, that'd be where we're in, we're in an age of censorship. And I think what's really interesting is because, because of social distancing, all we have is social media. So really, if you get censored, uh, and I've seen this happen to quite a few artists, I think uh, Lil Boosie got banned from Instagram. For, for, for many artists right now, that's all you have. So if you get blocked or banned from Instagram, you don't have any way to make any money and to connect with your fans. So we're kind of in a very precarious situation right now. And this is globally. In, in all measures of life, I feel like um, we're at the risk of potentially losing a lot of liberties. So uh, one thing I've been preaching heavily on is people thinking for themselves, and particularly with this disease, which is very real, mind you. I think I've been uh, misunderstood in saying uh, it's scripted. I'm not saying COVID is scripted, but the politics and the information around it or the lack thereof, we're not being given uh, real numbers in real time, and we don't have any access to anything except what's on mainstream media. So I just think we need to really do research and read and, and be mindful. And even sometimes putting a search in Google, you have to find other search engines to look for other information because what we're seeing is being heavily uh, censored. So um, on the streaming tip, I, I've been streaming since the lockdown really weekly. Uh, after a certain amount of weeks, I partnered up with uh, the Blue Note Club in New York and we did things for several weeks. And after a while I stopped because I was operating on the honor system and saying, okay, well, here's a virtual admission. I didn't call it a donation or a tip because people feel like, well, I don't have to do it. So it's still an admission, but I wanted to offer it for free because I also understand that not everyone can afford it, especially during these times, particularly musicians who are not working. So if you have it, give something. If you don't, I understand that's fine. But what I found is, thousands of people are tuning in every week and not giving anything. And I, I stopped it because I'm, I don't want to further contribute to the devaluation of our art form by giving it for free because people feel almost entitled to free music at this point. And I didn't want to come out, I don't want to come out on the other side of this feeling like people don't even want to pay for live music anymore. So uh, where I do understand and totally agree with Erica's model uh, that you pay a dollar or three dollars something because yeah yo if you're getting five thousand ten thousand views that that's that's a nice piece of change right there even if it's at a dollar more so than you get ten thousand views and hardly anyone contributes anything so right now what I'm developing with my web designer is a way to come back and do live stream again but that exists behind a paywall because the honor system doesn't necessarily work because not everybody is honorable. Um, and it won't be for, I won't gouge people, but it, it has to be something because it takes money and I'm giving people high production values. I'm in a recording studio. Uh, our stuff is not kinking out. Uh, the, the, the connections are clear. The audio is high quality and it takes high, it takes money to pay musicians and to deliver high quality audio. So got to pay something. And artists, if you love this music and you love, you have your favorite artists, support them in whatever way you can directly. I think that's ultimately the thing. But we as artists also have to have product offered directly for people to support it. So there's that. And 
autonomy and ownership, I think is the key. Have your own stuff, have your own sites, have your own things where people can directly support you without going through too many or at any middle middlemen or middle people at all. Love it. Thank you, man. You've been dropping bombs all day. We appreciate it. And uh, you're, uh, you already gave your social. So um, with that, I want to thank everyone. My name is Billy Johnson Jr. It's been an honor and pleasure to be your host for Music Day. It's a verified hit. Another episode down. So thank you guys. You all have a wonderful day. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. Music Day, a verified hit, is presented by the Living Legends Foundation, Inc. Real talk with experience. Please follow and share Music Day on Instagram at Living Legends Foundation and at Music Day Podcast on Twitter at The LLF Inc. Join us on Facebook, The Living Legends Foundation. Executive producers are Jacqueline Reinhardt, Mark Hill, Ken Johnson, and Pat Shields. Our associate producers are Shannon Henderson, Sheila Eldridge, Tony Winger, Vivian Scott Chu, and Varnell Johnson. Production by Mark Hill Creative. Talent booking Black.LLC. Theme music by Wendell Wellman for Star Maker Global. Interstitial music by William Reinhardt. And I'm your announcer, Jay Johnson.